Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. My name is Jill Foos. I'm a functional medicine and integrative nutrition health coach. I created this podcast to bring you along as we travel down intriguing science-packed roads, debunking old medical paradigms and perusing new innovative therapies and modalities with the finest functional medicine doctors, practitioners, and like-minded biohackers while living our best life. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode on the Health Trip Podcast. So midlife is defined as being between the ages of about 30, 35, and 60 years old. And this is a time in our life where we start to see and feel things going in maybe not the direction we really want them to. So things like brain fog, forgetting where we left our keys, maybe talking on the phone and looking for a phone at the same time. Um, maybe you're having to make some more trips to get Botox and your skin health isn't as, as it once was. Uh, belly fat, dreaded hair thing. God knows I've been through that for decades. Chronic fatigue, poor sleep, and sadly, low to no libido. So these are just some of the examples that I have experienced and my clients have experienced, and the list goes on and on. And as we age, the doors to chronic disease open up. So the doors to heart disease, Alzheimer's, type 2 diabetes, and cancer, we're all at risk for all of these. I've always been a competitor. I don't know if I've ever really brought up my competitive edge, but from the ages of seven to about 18, I was a competitive equestrian um, hunter jumper rider. And I was the worst loser that you could possibly imagine. I was such a poor loser. Um, I still have that innate mentality and that drive. But now instead of competing against my, my um, fellow horsemen, I compete against aging. And I know that aging is inevitable. We're all going to age and it looks different for all of us, but I'm certainly not going to sit here passively and just let it unfold and take me down. I am all in against aging poorly. So I'm all in when it comes to optimizing my overall health and wellness as well, especially during this time, which is um, menopause for me at 55. And the thing about being all in all the time is that it gets easier. So in, in the beginning, the lifestyle interventions are absolutely so hard to change, right? Things are really new and finding a new routine and getting comfortable with all of it. It's really hard, but your new routine then becomes your new normal and you start to see how enjoyable it is, how delicious it is. And you reap sexy rewards, right? Now you have a rockin' libido and you can rock a bathing suit and have healthy hair growth, youthful skin. You can go places and travel and do all these amazing activities um, without feeling bad. But the question is this, what does your version of all in mean? And what does it look like? And what are the things that we should be more aware of that we should be doing and taking and planning for as we age? So my guest today is going to help break down the science of aging and what we need to pay attention to and how to execute it all so that we can be optimized midlife human performance machines. And I'm really excited to have this doctor on. His name is Dr. Brian Stepanenko, and he is a board certified family physician and functional medicine practitioner certified by the Institute for Functional Medicine. He works alongside Dr. Gabriel Lyon, and maybe some of you have heard of Dr. Gabriel Lyon, but she's really pioneered this muscle-centric approach to um to aging and has really helped a lot of people understand the importance of lean muscle mass and um, how muscles are our longevity er organ. And so Dr. Brian, um, he is her lead um, physician and educator for her clinical practice and the Institute for Muscle-Centric Medicine. 
And he lectures internationally on how to identify and mitigate threats to health and performance in the military operation environment and everyday life. And he is teaching staff for the military's only functional medicine training pathway based out of Walter Reed National Medical Center. He was also a career firefighter and paramedic in South Florida prior to accepting his military scholarship to attend medical school at the University of Miami and completed seven years as an active active duty army family physician before joining Dr. Lyon in her practice. He cares for the full spectrum of patient populations, including pediatric, adult, geriatric, veteran, athlete, and tactical athlete populations. And just a medical disclaimer before we start, by listening to this podcast, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice or for making any lifestyle changes to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. And this entire disclaimer also applies to any of my guests on my podcast. So sit back, open your minds, and let's dive in. Hi, Dr. Brian. Welcome to the Health Trip Podcast. So happy to have you here today. Grateful for the opportunity to spend some time with you, Jill. Thanks for the invite. So before we get started, you have a very interesting background and perspective on health. Can just just share with my viewers how you became so steeped in functional medicine coming from where you came from, and they don't really know much about you, just a little bio, um, and why it's so important to you to bring this awareness to the, not just the civilian population, but also to the military. I appreciate the the question. Um, So, I mean started off way before I can remember. And quite literally, I'll explain that. Uh, I had leukemia when I was a kid, when I was three till I was five. And you shared with me a little bit of information about you know, what it is to be health-minded um, and almost the healthy deviant in, in community and then grow your family to with that enhanced awareness. So my mom was looking for integrative solutions, anything and everything that will protect her kid, um, ensure that her kid is able to beat the cancer, but then also live a full vibrant life despite having had cancer previously. So in terms of food as medicine, exercise as medicine, um, herbals and nutraceuticals and anything and everything, once again, um, we really were an integrative minded family growing up. Um, So I appreciated the the importance of that. And um, growing up, I was a firefighter paramedic um, that then went to medical school and saw joining the military as just joining a bigger fire department. But I was originally thinking I would go into emergency medicine. I I really didn't have this uh, awareness of what functional medicine was until a mentor of mine in my first month of medical school. Um, He was a mentor in the space of exercise as medicine and was an ambassador internationally for exercise as medicine. He said, hey, you should go to this lunchtime talk, this lunchtime talk where it happened to be Mark Hyman talking Mm. about functional medicine. And he had a few other key leaders that came with him to share some cases about how they were leveraging food as medicine and exercise as medicine and a version of personalized medicine that just blew my mind in terms of what was possible. Here I am thinking, you know, conventional medicine, you know, I can do that. But now this just painted a whole other different picture of what's possible and really blended my passion for exercise as medicine, food as medicine, and, you know, personalized root cause focused care and made it made it uh, possible for me to join a community. They had actually Institute for Functional Medicine created a partnership with my medical school. And for four years, I was learning from best in the field in terms of functional medicine community. 
and being mentored and brought up by diverse professionals that were in the general area that were coming together on Saturdays to learn about functional medicine and how to apply it. So there was people that had been doing it for years, people that were just coming into the space. And it was such a unique experience, but I was also studying to pass the test. And in terms of um, being on military scholarship to go to medical school, I then got into residency training and was learning the advanced practice modules for the Institute for Functional Medicine. Mm -hmm. And when you learn these things, you can't unlearn them. And you start right. to think in a way that changes the communications that I was having, the words that I was saying with patients, I was changing the way I was delivering care, that was changing what I knew to be important. And the, that created a sense of urgency for me and a sense of um, such, such a strong picture of the gap and the gap between what's possible and what's available. I remember being in an advanced practice module for the Institute for Functional Medicine. It was the energy module and Dave Rakel was on stage and he had us doing uh, an activity sitting back to back with another attendee. Mm. And he had us ask three series of questions. What do you want your health for? What do you really want your health mm -hmm. for? What do you really, really, really want your health for? And what I ended up with was that I wanted to bring functional medicine to the military community. And it was because it was, it was obvious to me that there was, I mean, call it an underserved population, call it what you want, but there was such a need for thinking differently, doing things differently, having different communications and, and conversations with the patients that my ultimate goal and, and a vision of mine is to turn patients into problem solvers. And I yeah. know you resonate that, yeah. uh, with that. And I didn't think I would end up in an educational space at all. But when you start to do these things, you learn lessons and you wish other providers were in the know and you take what you can and, and translate it to, you know, some small nuggets of wisdom that are going to change some behaviors of patients, of practitioners. Yeah. And really that's, that's the vision of end state that I'm working towards is how can I continue to serve the warfighter community, military community, but now translate the frameworks, the lessons learned, the wisdom nuggets over to treating similar population on civilian side of the house. Mm -hmm. And really I, I joined up with Dr. Gabrielle Lyon because her message is my message in terms of a muscle centric functional medicine approach to care. to where we treat high performers in diverse professional fields, people that continuously put their, their foot to the, to the pedal in terms of, um, you know, living a high demand, no fail lifestyle that is high stress, high yeah. uh, um, routine and rhythm is, is very high paced, high tempo and having to do that day in, day out and deliver and then often crashing and burning multiple times, you know, per year, but getting right back on the saddle. Um, so these are people that are like elite war fighters in a special operation community, which is what the community that I'm coming from treating as well as elite entrepreneurs and C-suite executives, CEOs, C, uh, you know, CTOs and COOs, um, they all have a very similar archetype. And that's one thing that easily translates for me from treating the military, you know, special operation community population over to these high performing individuals and catching them mm -hmm. at diverse locations on their professional spectrum. So very early on, knowing the demands, knowing the risks of that lifestyle, how can they do it better and ensure longevity, durability, you know, effectiveness into in, long into their career, as well as people on the on the very late stage of their career saying, you know, hey, the wheels fell off already. 
Yeah. Get me back up on the horse. Like I want to be a better version of myself and have quality of life in my old age. Yeah. So that's been helpful. Um, some of the educational content that, uh, has been refined over, over years of bringing functional medicine to the military space and building up a military functional medicine community that is several hundred strong now between the VA mm. and the DOD. Wow. Uh, we, actually, we actually created a training pathway through Walter Reed, uh, which is a center of excellence in terms of military medical education, um, military medical institutions, period. Walter Reed is up here. And they host an annual um, pathway and program where 30, 30 professionals, 30 medical professionals and healthcare professionals get trained in functional medicine. So they do the advanced practice for um, yeah, the AFMCP mm-hmm. and they get that training. So the lessons learned uh, and the content developed through educating that in that pathway um, has directly translated to how we can teach other practitioners and professionals to learn functional medicine at some basic core concepts and roll it out to understand, you know, what's what's important when I dig deep from a history standpoint. What are some potential root causes of dysfunction? Um, just an example, one mnemonic, um, actually acronym, I apologize, uh, is STAINED, S-T-A-I-N-E-D. Mm-hmm. And it just lists out the entire uh, list of, you know, what we look for when we do a timeline or a deep dive in history, root causes of dysfunction. So stress, sleep, SNPs, mm-hmm. trauma, toxins, tablets, allergies, including you know, sensitivities and intolerances, um, autoimmune, so loss of cell tolerance, and then infections, ingestions, nutritional excesses, nutritional deficiencies, EMF and radiation, and that was actually a recent ad. We were lacking the E for a long time, and it was just a acronym. And then uh, digestion and dysbiosis. And I mean, that framework fell out of some efforts and really emerged uh, and has been an excellent way or a framework that we've been able to teach other practitioners saying, hey, these things are important. These are what you want to look for. These are the ATMs, antecedents, triggers, and mediators of dysfunction. So find out what's unique in your patient. And we can even use that same framework to teach patients and treat, uh, teach community members, hey, in these areas, here's what check engine lights look like. Mm-hmm. So early dysfunction, look for these. You can have a better conversation with your car mechanic it, when you're taking your vehicle in and it's got the, the dummy lights on and the check engine lights are on. Yeah you're going to have a better conversation. You're going to be more productive in your interaction. If you have a general understanding of what might be going on and early, so that's basically early assessment, self-assessment, check engine lights, Mm -hmm. and then early early assessment, how I can quantify or understand better what's what's going on. And then early intervention, starting with self-care first. So really that framework unlocked some, some potential for teaching both you know, medical teams, even non-medical personnel, uh, and then teaching community members and patients how to take better care of themselves. You're basically combining what us health coaches learn. And I went to the the Institute for Functional Medicine is an umbrella for the school I went to, which is the Functional Medicine Coaching Academy. Um, so that's where I got my health coaching. Then I became a national board certified health coach as well. But you're talking about all the things we've learned about lifestyle intervention, but you have the bonus of bringing in the medical intervention, 
right? And just finding that sweet spot for them to meet and and how people can, and this is what I talk about all the time. This is what I do on, I focus on the preventative um, healthcare so that by the time you're, you know, 65 and older, you know, you don't have to worry about all these things because you've been preventing them for for hopefully decades at that point. And the beautiful thing um, about teaching people how to think about these uh, root causes of dysfunction, identify, you know, early warning signals, do yeah. something early to either quantify and understand it better or address it and intervene early. That once again, turns, you know, patients or community members into problem solvers, not only solving yes. their own problems, but solving the problems of those around them. Yes. And that's, that's force multiplication. That's quite literally, you know, the yep. definition of like, special operation community members and what they do, they force multiply and a, a well-informed, well-educated and experienced uh, patient then starts to solve the problems of the people around them. And that's, yeah. you know, fantastic. Amazing. Another thing, brief nod to FMCA near and dear to my heart here. Um, my wife is FMCA trained as well, health coach, Great. Uh, very close colleague and friend that uh, we usually do I mean, anywhere from two hour to four hour workshops about threats to health and and that's the health and performance in the military operational environment. He's a health coach as well, FMCA trained. Um, definitely an amazing training pathway and program and some fantastic professionals that, uh, like yourself that you know end up going through that pathway. Yeah, well, thank you. And one of the reasons I was so excited to have you on my podcast is because of my five kids. My middle one is, I was sharing with you, with you before we went um, press record, was that he is a soldier at Fort Bragg. And he obviously is a product of me raising him into, you know, being very root cause approach in his own and be, becoming his own detective of, of his own health status at all times, which he is very good at. And um, I just love that you brought this to the military because obviously, you know, we are not a military family when he has had this desire to go into the army for, since he was like three. Um, Of course, the first thing I want to know is, well, what's the food like? And are you sleeping well? And what do you need? You know, are you taking your supplements? He's like, mom, I'm in the army. Like I'm doing the best I can, you know, and he's doing a great job, but it's very challenging. And so did you, when you had this, this desire to bring this mindset of, um, root cause medicine approach to the army was there pushback or or were they like oh this is interesting let's do it i'll tell you um early years so eight years ago when i first got started in the space and was learning more through the advanced practice modules um there was there was a significant alignment especially with lifestyle medicine and lifestyle medicine based interventions and a, a building of the evidence that supported things like um, routine and rhythm for sleep and um, exercise for sleep and exercise for brain health and um, ways of reducing inflammation through diet and you know food as medicine strategies. So there was some general acceptance and, and really the, the setting was pretty rich. Uh, the, the soil was pretty rich in terms of pushing, um, they called it the performance triad at the time. And that was exercise, sleep and diet. Mm. And that was a priority from the top down in terms of military medicine, which was phenomenal. And I was coming into that that space at that time, performance triad made sense. Lifestyle medicine made sense to a lot of individuals. They were really starting to appreciate that as important. Now, functional medicine, the terminology around it was, was something that raised more questions than it did provided answers. So figuring out how to communicate about it in 
the military health system space is something that um, added simply a sense of like need and urgency, uh, we, we figured out how to communicate about it. And it was that it was a framework and an operating system. Mm -hmm. And it allowed us to provide personalized lifestyle and integrative medicine approaches that address root cause dysfunction. Mm -hmm. So it, it was a, a way and a means by which we were able to do personalized lifestyle and integrative medicine. And, you know, the a surgeon uses surgery to practice allopathic or osteopathic medicine. Well, we use the, the functional medicine framework and care delivery operating system to deliver yeah. excellent personalized medicine. Yeah. Very, very cool. So one of the pillars of health is exercising, which we're talking about. And you work alongside Dr. Gabriel Lyon, who has really brought to the forefront how important muscle is, that it's our longevity organ. And I talk about this all the time with my midlife women, because it's, we're losing our lean muscle mass as we age, and it gets harder and harder to maintain it and build it as we go through menopause. But why is muscle mass so crucial? Why are we talking about it when it comes to longevity? Yeah. Um, we, we invited, uh, Gabrielle Lyon on to talk to our military functional medicine community. And immediately after her conversation and, and her lecture, uh, I called her up and I just resonated with her for maybe 30, 30 to 45 minutes saying like, why is nobody else talking about this? Mm -hmm. There is evidence behind this. It blends the best of nutrition science, exercise science, and really applies uh, a Pareto law or a 2080 principle in mm -hmm. terms of if you focus on the things to, that optimize skeletal muscle health, you're, you're writing metabolic wrongs, you're creating resiliency, you're increasing your metabolic capacity uh, for health and longevity. And in terms of um, skeletal muscle health, yeah, it, it is a pinnacle of health. It is something that if you exercise in a way, you eat in a way and you live in a way that serves your optimal muscle health uh, content, so content, function, and context, if you really just focus on the ingredients necessary for that, then health is a byproduct. Wellness is a byproduct. Your ability to perform and recover ends up being a byproduct. Um, so yeah, in terms of um, ways of which you can support your optimal uh, skeletal muscle health, you know, I, I touched on a, a few things, but really what we don't often talk about, especially as clinical practitioners from like a physician perspective, is how resistance exercise plays into this, mm -hmm. how dietary protein plays into this. And it is extremely rare to find physicians that are uh, comfortable with their ability to counsel patients on diet, number one, yep. but number two, on ways that you can leverage your diet and dietary protein specifically to support optimal skeletal muscle health and how skeletal muscle health translates to your ability to balance hormones, your ability to burn calories, your ability to um, withstand you know, an accident, a motor vehicle accident or a fall and bounce back rather than suffering decremental skeletal muscle loss, decremental health loss, decremental metabolic uh, issues. Yeah, one of the first conversations I'll have, especially with my midlife, um, female, uh, clients is about sarcopenia. 
right? No one talks about sarcopenia. Your, your internist isn't telling you about sarcopenia when you're in your, you know, forties, you know, they're not talking about it until you have right. it. And then you, until you've literally fallen and broken a hip and now you're in, you know, a home to help you recover. And you've yeah. now lost some of your independence. And so let's just, let's start having this conversation about sarcopenia. What is it? How mm -hmm. do people get it? And how do we avoid it? So insufficient or deficient skeletal muscle mass and poor skeletal muscle quality. Now, skeletal so wait, when you, when you say skeletal yeah. muscle, skeletal health, you're talking about the bone or the muscle? So muscle has several different versions and skeletal muscle that I'm referring to specifically is the muscles that we have full control over that are responsible for locomotion as opposed to cardiac muscle or smooth muscle. Okay. So skeletal muscle is those responsible for locomotion, but so much more also. Um, they serve as a metabolic um, sink for both uh, glucose, sugars, fats, and amino acids. Um, and they help with metabolizing, storing, and mobilizing all of those uh, raw materials. Yep. So glucose is mostly stored in our muscle. Yes, and with activity, um, depending upon the types of activity, uh, there will be signals to store either more or less glycogen, which can right. e uh, be stored right there at the site of the muscle within, within the, muscle, um, the muscle cells and basically uh, be mobilized and made ready uh, for uh, immediate use. So yes, so when, uh, glycogen. Mm -hmm. So when someone is, has sarcopenia, that is basically the same as saying they have loss of muscle, loss of muscle mass. And so if we picture elderly people, for example, walking across the street and they have a walker or a cane and they look very small and frail, that's sarcopenia. Right. And I think we need to rethink about the definition. And we actually uh, provide the diagnosis a little more frequently, especially for younger individuals, um, when we have insufficient muscle mass. Now there's no cutoff. There's no cutoff that's mm -hmm. agreed upon by um, you know, wide academic institutions, but that's, that's we, in practice, we, we start to incorporate DEXA scans. And recently we've started incorporating DEXA scans very early, um, especially for, for females. We start from 50 and beyond. Uh, we do both the bones, bone density scan as well as the body mm -hmm. composition. Yeah. But just about anyone that we interact with clinically, we do a DEXA scan or at least an in-body scan to understand body composition. And mm -hmm. we go with lean body mass as a metric that we mm -hmm. want to improve upon. So wherever you're at, we quantify. And sarcopenia, uh, if we expanded the definition to insufficient or deficient, um, there is some ways that you can identify people that aren't moving, that aren't exercising, that have lower lean, lean body mass. Mm -hmm. And um, some of these will even extrapolate a measure of lean muscle mass. Um, and that's a starting point. And the bottom line is that we want to improve that number. And we want to increase that lean body mass and pull someone away from sarcopenia, someone away from fragility. Because like you said, the the image is someone older, frail appearing, but you can have someone younger, yeah. frail appearing. Um, we've got different terms for that, but individuals that will not incorporate you know, the movement or the dietary strategies to protect skeletal muscle health. 
very often we'll see low lean mass, lean body mass or low skeletal muscle mass. And there's a statistic out there and I don't have the exact number, but it's when somebody falls and breaks their hip, like an elderly person, if they fall and break their hip, the likelihood mm -hmm. of them dying within that year is, is, is great or almost as great as having heart disease. Yeah. Uh, in terms of being protective for falls, injuries, and uh, some resiliency around those catastrophic mm -hmm. events later in life. Um, we know skeletal muscle mass is protective. We know vitamin D is protective. Um, both of those in, in terms of, you know, surviving a catastrophic health event like that, mm -hmm, extremely important. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about Alzheimer risk and dementia risk and how protective um, exercise and uh, even skeletal muscle mass is in the long run, um, there's some evidence behind that as well. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on from sarcopenia, let's connect the dots to how do we avoid it, right? And so just speaking to the midlife population right now, like women, I've noticed that probably 90% yeah. of the women I work with are under eating protein. And I know this is something that Dr. Gabriel Lyon is like all over, right? She right. really has brought this awareness. I think I send a lot of women to her podcast, by the way, you know, listen to this. This is not my opinion. This is based on science, on real data that all of you have really done a lot of hard work to discover for us. And to benefit from. So women are drastically under eating protein as they age, but it's the opposite. They need more protein as they age. And so talk about some of the principles that, that you work on from the muscle centric approach in terms of helping people understand why protein is such an important macronutrient and why we need more of it and, and where its place comes in our overall health and longevity. Excellent. Uh, appreciate the question. So in terms of why, why build your skeletal muscle mass? Um, we've already touched on that it's protective for uh, longevity, for avoiding certain health conditions that are common, especially with older age, mm -hmm. um, being protective against dementia, Alzheimer's, cancer, mm -hmm. um, things, things like that. And it, so from a health protection standpoint, that's important. From your ability to be functional into your old age and to participate and have a quality of life um, to contribute to raising your grandkids, to being able to chase them around and, and lift kids mm -hmm. without, you know, without throwing out your back or without being too weak or off balance to be able to. Um, so from a quality of life perspective. Now, uh, specifically around why it's important for postmenopausal or perimenopausal uh, ladies, I'll bring up a couple of points. Uh, one, postmenopausal, there is a protein drive that becomes the determining factor, the, the, the determinant of how many calories your body seeks to consume throughout the day. So pr prior to menopause, there is uh, several things that play into the drive for caloric intake. It shifts uh, perimenopausal and then in postmenopausal, it is a, a factor that is mostly determinant around uh, dietary protein intake. And you can satiate, you can satisfy your body's protein drive. Mm -hmm. And overall, it will lead to a lower consumption of calories over the, the course of the day. And if you've tried eating protein forward, you know, at least 30 to 50 uh, grams per meal, then you'll see that you stay fuller longer and oh, yeah. you, get, you get good, consistent energy. So in terms of what it does for you and your energy levels, both physically and mentally, it keeps you steady and keeps you up. And it 
when you consume it in a pattern that achieves muscle protein synthesis threshold, which means you've consumed enough leucine, typically at least 2.5 grams of leucine. Tell a, us what leucine is. So leucine is an amino acid and it is an amino acid that is part of, um, we have essential and non-essential amino acids, but the amino acid profile of a food, specifically a protein, is determining how high quality of a, of a protein it is. Now, leucine is a, a key amino acid that uh, when you consume enough, it initiates a, a metabolic process in the cell that is, is moderated and basically uh, managed by mTOR, mammalian target of rapamycin. And it turns on this mTOR, this anabolic process that bumps your metabolism up and initiates muscle protein synthesis, muscle turnover. So, so anabolic is growing. So this is all about right. growing the muscle tissue. Now with dietary sources, you can maintain mm-hmm. the skeletal muscle health and the skeletal muscle quantity. But in terms of uh, giving the signal to grow, to truly mm-hmm. be anabolic, that's where you need the resistance exercise component as well. Right. So yeah, there's dietary ways of triggering muscle protein synthesis, which can protect what you have mm-hmm. and help you recover and rebuild. But the signal to grow, uh, that, that's really where you can leverage this resistance exercise training, um, even, even HIIT training or metabolic conditioning. And I know I'm kind of using some terms that I, I believe your, your audience is probably up on. Yeah. But in, in terms of exercise, there's several different ways to support either building strength or building hypertrophy. Um, There's some different strategies and different goals uh, that you can take with your exercise, but that is the signal. That is the demand signal. And then the dietary protein is what is going to help initiate muscle protein synthesis to recover fast and perform and protect what you have. So this is why it is so important for women to optimize their protein intake and build muscle through weight training, weight resistant type of exercise. Right. Yeah. A couple other things actually. So in terms of um, perimenopause, so mm-hmm. around the time of menopause and vas- vasomotor symptoms, meaning uh, hot flashes, night sweats, body composition matters. And what I mean by that is your amount of excess body fat or body fat mass period corresponds with how much vasomotor symptoms you may have. So how much Hmm. perimenopausal symptoms you may have and maintaining a lean body composition, having lower excess body fat or lower body fat mass uh, actually corresponds with less hot flashes, less, um, less vasomotor symptoms. So really, I mean, that makes interesting point. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. I guess I just never really thought about it that way. Yeah, we started getting into we started getting into that area in terms of uh, our patient population, our patient base. They were they were starting to um, lose the weight and lose the symptoms, and that was so amazing to us. We were just like connecting the dots and saying, "Okay, you know what's driving this?" And Gabrielle gave me a lead and said, "Hey, please look into this." And that was also around the conversation of um, semaglutide and semaglutide mm-hmm. being a medication that is a GLP-1 agonist. It's a, it's a medication that leverages a normal process that our body incorporates in response to bitter sensation. Um, 
But anyhow, that medication was helping individuals get and achieve uh, lean body mass, optimal lean body mass that they were aiming for, and their perimenopausal symptoms were gone away. They came off the medication, they went back on it, and the, the same mechanism that contributed to decreased symptoms with that medication was to was part of the explanation as to why lean body mass, or sorry, lean uh, lean composition mm-hmm. led to less symptoms for a perimenopausal state. Very interesting. That was, yeah. Yeah, that's and interesting. The, the other thing is that you can leverage um, this protein dosing and this pro, high, uh, protein forward eating strategy mm-hmm. to burn more calories throughout the day than yep. if you didn't hit the threshold to initiate muscle protein synthesis. Because every time you hit that threshold, you're kicking your metabolism up and it's creating more of a caloric expenditure. And the dual benefit is that you're protecting the skeletal muscle that help skeletal muscle that you have or supporting the recovery from the resistance exercise that you're doing too. So I imagine that a question you want to ask is like, you know, what does this look like in a day? Exactly. I mean, this is something I talk about all the time, right? Because I'm dealing with women, working with women who really are afraid to eat more protein because protein, you feel very full and satiated. A lot of women mentally don't want that feeling, right? Because as we age, we're gaining belly fat. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of people correlate being full and satiated with getting fatter, right? You know, so it's really interesting the way mm-hmm. mostly women, because I work mostly, mostly with women, it's really interesting the way their mindset works around planning and building a proper meal. And so, mm-hmm. yes, please break it down for us. How much protein does that equate to? What does that look like? And does timing matter? Yes. Uh, yes. Total amount matters. And we'll talk about that. Timing matters and also protein pulsing. And I'll explain that. But in so total amount it depends on depends on what your health goals are. Um, so first off, we usually start off by saying, okay, from a calorie um, demand or calorie requirement standpoint, what are you trying to accomplish? Mm-hmm. And we'll start with, uh, okay, if weight loss is what you're intending to do, then let's just track. Let's track for a week, two weeks, see what is weight maintenance, weight maintenance calories, mm-hmm. and then we'll subtract by about twenty percent and say, okay, this seems reasonable, and let's start here. And of those calories, we then determine, okay, how much protein do you need based off of your ideal body weight? Well, wait, how are you figuring out the base calories? Are you using the information from an in-body or a DEXA scan? Because I do that as well. Are you looking at their basal metabolic rate? Two main ways. Um, We either calculate basal metabolic rate and have some type of metabolic assessment Mm-hmm. done. Um, and there's there's plenty of facilities that can incorporate yeah. both uh, DEXA assessment, body composition assessment, and a metabolic assessment. Mm-hmm. So we'll either have their BMR, you know, basal metabolic rate calculated and made available to us. And we'll say, okay, this is maintenance. Yeah. And then uh, subtract 20% from that. And that's, <clears throat> that's our, our baseline caloric way of doing it. The other way is literally just having them, like I mentioned, track and, and figure out, okay, if you are not changing weight at this, at this level, at this caloric uh, intake, then that's, that's our, our baseline piece of information that we then subtract the 20 or 25% from. Mm-hmm. Now, um, a lot of things go into determining, you know, isocaloric. So 
yeah, in terms of just the real world data piece is what what is weight maintenance for you? Or mm -hmm. what is it calculated based off of metabolic assessment? And then you utilize that information to then break it down and start with the protein, right? Then figuring out yes. how much protein is part of that equation, because right. that's what you want to prioritize. Yes. And part of muscle-centric medicine approach is that we start off simple and give, uh, give high-level guidance to help you make easier decisions. So in terms of total protein for the day, you are aiming for, we talk about one gram per pound of body weight. And that puts you at 2.2 you know, um, grams per kilo. Now, that's if you're already at your ideal body weight or if right. you're looking right. to maintain maintain body weight. I was um, gonna ask you, is are you right. doing the one gram per pound of ideal body weight or where they're at right now? Yes, ideal body weight. Got it. So let's say someone has 120, 120 mm -hmm. grams of protein and that's their daily goal. Mm -hmm. That has a certain caloric value there. Mm -hmm. um, we then establish a, a guiding a guiding goal for carbohydrate intake throughout the day. And we usually aim for about a one-to-one. -one. Um, so 120 grams of protein and 120 grams of carbs. You may need more if you're a high-performing athlete and based on the type of exercise expenditure, the physical activities that you care to do. Um, or you might be aiming for a little bit less. We have some individuals that aim for uh, about 90 to 100, and they try to do a little bit more carb-restrictive approach. And that is, provides the opportunity to leverage almost like a, a very low-carb uh, metabolic mm -hmm. uh, process to where you're going to be mobilizing and metabolizing fats for fuel. Right. So yeah, we start off with the, the goal for protein for the day. We then do kind of a one-to-one -one approach with the carbohydrate goal. Right. And then that has a calorie uh, caloric value as well. And then mm -hmm. the remainder ends up being, you know, fat value and fat allowance, we'll, we'll call it. Right. Um, so we, we often do incorporate um, <clears throat> lower fat approaches just because it ends up being, you know, what's remaining. Um, we incorporate complex carbs and non-starchy vegetables. Um, and we talk about, you know, having your fruits paired with meals, uh, especially ones where you've hit your protein goals. And then uh, in terms of protein, we do talk about uh, lean meats and options, but also just considering your source and trying to minimize any processed uh, protein sources. But um, we do incorporate and, and uh, make sure that people have tools in the toolbox for meals on the go. And what that can look like is whey protein, you know, powders, casein, other beef-based, uh, mm -hmm. animal-based protein sources or blends of um, plant-based mm -hmm. protein sources that just have a nice, robust amino acid profile. Mm -hmm. And um, you mentioned uh, you mentioned a question of, you know, does timing matter? Yes. So when you initiate muscle protein synthesis, the process stays on for three to four hours. So a meal every four to five hours is generally a pretty good spread to initiate muscle protein synthesis again and you kick up that metabolic rate again. So it's an opportunity. Um, some people incorporate time-restricted eating. And really we, we've found, and, and there was some newer evidence that uh, suggested that the first and last meals of the day are, are gonna be your most important in terms of being able to initiate and leverage the dietary strategies for muscle protein synthesis and optimal body composition. Um, so, First meal of the day, last meal of the day, definitely the most important, aiming for 30 to 50 grams uh, per 
for a time period there. But generally, at least 30 grams of a high quality protein. Um, because is, you need the 30 grams at least to get those about two and a half, three grams of leucine, which we talked about a, a bit ago. Perfect. Nailed it. <laughs> Got it. Okay. That's the gist. Yes. So I usually start by just throwing out hundred grams of protein a day might be a goal for someone because maybe I've calculated what they came from and they're coming from a place of 40 to 60 grams of protein. So we make it a, yeah. a, a goal to hit hundred grams and we break that up into three different meals. And so yeah. we're sort of saying the same thing. And then we do the fine tuning after we get comfortable with that. Yeah. We definitely start <laughs> with pe where people are at and where they're comfortable yeah. with. And if, if they were starting at 40 or 50, then, you know, yeah. they're not even ready to talk about the other, but they can talk about at least 30, you know, three times a day. And yep. that's, we, we then troubleshoot and problem solve, tweak what they're doing just enough to achieve that. And we give yep. them some tools and guidance on how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Because when you're coming from a diet with low amounts of animal source protein, which I prefer and find to be much more bioavailable and better for us. <laughs> it is really hard to have someone go from 40 to 60 grams a day to a hundred, you know, just even in a week, it's very hard. First, they have to wrap their head around what that even looks like on the plate and prep for it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of nuances to getting to that goal um, in mm -hmm. the beginning stages. And then it becomes just much more routine and then visually learning what that looks like. And then also yes. mastering it when you go out to eat, right? Because whatever right. we're learning in the home, whatever you're teaching and I'm teaching, if it's not something they can manage and achieve at a business conference or on a family vacation or right. in their office, it's, it's not going to work. It has to work across all boards. Yes. Failure to plan is planning to fail and it totally. needs to be travel proof and it needs to be like real world proof. And especially for yeah. um, moms, young moms, moms of young kids. Uh, yeah. And when, you know, you are the last person that, you know, plans are built around, uh, it needs to be flexible. Yeah. So it's said. really funny. Um, cause it was mother's day yesterday and I was, I put up a post and I found this old, um, project, my oldest one, who's 28. Now I found this old school project that he did. And it was listing out all the things like different, um, things about my mom. And one of the things, and this is, you know, over 24, 20 years ago, for sure. And one of the things he listed was my mom worries about eating enough protein. I was thinking, damn, I was thinking about it way back then too. Like way I knew. <laughs> yeah. Super important. And my mom is in her eighties and I have her rocking hundred grams of protein a day. And if you can't eat all the protein, right, there's things we can use. And I'm sure you incorporate, yes. like you said, the high quality protein powders or even BCAAs or, or essential amino acids, which we can use in pre-workout drinks. So there's always a way to get in more amino acids if we need to in the beginning. Yes. There's something to be said about whole food context of certain nutrients uh, and amino acids are included in that. And I'll just uh, give a nod to some new areas of science. Um, they, they generally refer to it as the black matter of food. Mm. Um, we know about certain micronutrients and certain compounds that have health benefits, but there's a whole host of other uh, compounds that are in the whole food sources that we may not yet uh, realize the full impact of um, in terms of the area of science called postbiotics. It ends up being the nutrients or the compounds that you may not be able to digest, 
or benefit from directly. However, your microbiome then digests and metabolizes these compounds and now creates something that then becomes nourishment to either your intestinal health lining or you and your metabolic uh, function. So this world of postbiotics, you know, the things that your microbiome metabolizes and makes available to you, and also the black matter, uh, you know, black matter of food, uh, black, you know, that's, that's a really interesting uh, justification to try and leverage whole food sources as much as possible. But yeah, to, to achieve the doses that we're looking for, sometimes you need the tools in your toolbox and it needs to be real world proof and it needs to be travel proof and it needs to be convenient. Yeah. And I love that you just brought up gut health. I mean, such an important topic that we just don't talk about enough. Mm-hmm. although it is being talked about a lot more these days. But one of the things I try to explain is even though you are now rocking hundred grams of high quality protein, it doesn't necessarily equate to your body's ability to break down those, absorb them, and then get yes. them to where they need to go, which is why there's other tests to look at, right? There's a micronutrient test that I do with my clients, and I'm sure you probably do this as well. And it's a blood test that really looks at um, intracellularly what your the micronutrient status is inside your cell, right? So we can look at all of these different micronutrients, and then we can assess, well, maybe this person has leaky gut if there's a lot of deficiencies. And now we have to look at gut health and, and assess that and work on the gut health because now you're spending all this great money, this all this money on all this great food, and your body's not being able to absorb all of it and utilize mm-hmm. it. Hundred percent. A couple of things to what you just said here. Uh, that sensation of feeling very heavy in your belly after a meal, especially mm-hmm. if it's higher protein, some individuals do require some digestive support. And the goal would be, hey, leverage enough to where you no longer have that that bogged down, energy drained sensation. You know, ninety minutes after your meal. Um, so sometimes digestive support may be necessary, especially in the early phases of your body trying to figure out yeah. how to digest and then absorb that much you know, protein or carbs or whatever the, the meal composition is. Um, in terms of the, the other uh, comment that you mentioned, um, man, you touched on, you touched on something uh, very important there, the micronutrient testing. Yeah, um, so we do micronutrient testing. Yes, definitely, for sure. And when we see some uh, some nutrients that are insufficient um, or uh, clinical symptoms of you know low absorption or inflammation, then mm-hmm. we say, okay, um, is there intestinal inflammation? Is there malabsorption, meaning like deficient absorption of nutrients? Yep. If so, why? And we go looking for, sometimes it's candida, um, or yeast, sometimes it is dysbiosis and just unfriendly, you know, uh, bacteria, something that shouldn't be there that we end up treating and removing. Sometimes it is a sensitivity to certain uh, foods, proteins, or um, even glute, uh, gluten and wheat. Uh, we yeah. tend to see that. And uh, we advise people to, hey, minimize the inflammation. The inflammation is getting in your way of absorbing the nutrients. And we're trying to optimize your nutrients for your metabolism and your hormonal health. So let's right. do this. Right. And it changes the conversation when you can point to something and say, hey, you know, your your numbers are suggesting this is the evidence. Here, here it is, you know, right here. Um, so we'll treat what we can. We do our part. And here's here's what you can do. 
I'd also like to add in two other components that might make it difficult, or three other components that might make it difficult for people to properly absorb and digest these micronutrients. One is alcohol consumption, right? People, yeah. these, some of the women I work with, they just, you know, they're social drinkers and they right. don't want to give it up, but it might be something that if they gave up, they might feel different, right? Things might be working differently for them. Another yes. one is stress, right? We know that stress alters the microbiome and the way in which our body absorbs and digests our food that we eat. And 100%. oh my gosh, what was the other one I was going to say? Stress, sleep. Oh. Right? Of course, Le sleep deprivation sleep. is a stressor on the body. And, mm -hmm. you know, if stress in itself can lead to oh, genetics. inflammation, intestinal permeability, yep. genetics, we, we actually see a lot of intestinal parasites and worms too uh, in, our, in our clinical practices, especially since we travel. Uh, so we, we treat a lot of individuals that travel internationally, have been in, you know, off the grid, austere environments. Mm -hmm. um, and those, those are things that we also factor into it. Even mold, um, mycotoxin yep. exposure uh, will have gut manifestations um, and can lead to some intestinal inflammation and even malabsorption type pictures. Yep. So yeah, we, we get a chance to dive deep and you as a functional medicine practitioner, me as a functional medicine practitioner, we incorporate that piece of information as something we're looking for, something we're asking about. So the gist, the gist of the story is test, don't guess, right? Start looking at this as... Um, a discovery journey, right? Gather data, be working with someone like yourself or me who can help point you into the direction to get to someone like you. Because I think, mm -hmm. you know, a health coach is an amazing person on your healthcare team. I think we are very valuable to the, the, the equation, but there is a medical intervention. I always say there's a lifestyle yeah. intervention, a personalized supplementation approach, possibly if needed. And then there's the medical intervention and they all matter and they all help make a difference. And, um, the gist of the story is, is to just gather data and you might not be able to get that in the conventional healthcare model. And thank goodness yes. for people like you bringing it to the military. So my son is in good hands. <laughs> now I know this even exists in the military. It makes me feel much better. Um, yeah, 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 we've we've built the community that are all like-minded birds of a feather, and everybody resonates around yeah. the fact that you know lifestyle has a role here, nutrition has a role here, exercise yeah. has a role here, and this concept yeah. of muscle-centered medicine I think is going to percolate down mm -hmm. uh, in terms in terms of performance and wellness optimization, and it can be leveraged today in your house, in your home, on your plate, and you can you know make decisions on how much protein you eat how much hydration you consume, how much fiber you take in, uh, how your gut is functioning. And all of that can play into optimal skeletal muscle health, health span, longevity, and uh, improved resilience to be able to, to handle whatever life is going to throw at you. Yeah. Well, I was just going to close with asking you some like three great strategies for people at home and you just answered it. So people, you listen to this and take home some of these strategies and just give them a try. And honestly, Dr. Brian, we are at the end of our podcast and I had this whole section on mitochondrial health. So now I am going to have to have you back on so we can break down mitochondrial health because that is another lever, lever to pull in terms of the longevity equation and such an important one. And it's one that most people do not understand what mitochondria is, what the role of it is in, in our overall health and wellness, and something to really have fun and dive deep on. So I hope you'll come back to the Health Trip podcast and, and, and talk about that. I'd be honored, Jill.
And it's been great spending time with you once again. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, God, everyone is going to walk away with a lot of nuggets from this one. I really appreciate your time. I appreciate that. All right. Thanks. Take care. Thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Lifestyle changes can be hard and overwhelming to make. By building your support team of functional medicine doctors, therapists, and health coaches, you can reach your optimal health goals. Be sure to check out my other podcasts. Until we meet again, stay healthy.